The following recording may contain explicit language. I can't get more explicit than may. Let's just say it may. It's Tuesday, May 14th, 2019. From Slate, it's The Gist. I'm Mike Pesca. In between the time I'm saying these words and the time that you hear these words, it is most likely that one big thing will change. Well, big to basketball fans, but also big as far as representatives of our species go. The NBA will hold what is called its draft lottery, which rewards draft picks to the worst teams in the sport. This is not the actual players selected, but it will be which teams get which spots. And this year, there's such a good player that affects everything. So vying for the top pick is the New York Knicks, And the Knicks are owned by the scion of a billion-dollar cable conglomerate, the most expensive franchise in the center of capitalism, in the most advanced economy in the world, a team whose fortunes are buoyed by reams of Wall Street traders buying luxury suites to woo corporate clients. This teeming morass of market worship and profit porn will be reveling in the NBA draft a quasi-socialist redistribution of resources made real by a brazen and quite obvious restriction of trade. I know this is a mismatch of right and left, and it's incomprehensible to the point where even Tulsi Gabbard might be confused. But what we're talking about here is a guy named Zion Williamson. He's in the middle of it. He always is. He played at Duke. He's balletic and big. And by big, I mean tallish, you know, on the NBA side, 6'7", still taller than the average NBA player, a little taller, maybe slightly taller, but weighty. He would be the second heaviest player in the NBA. Zion weighs 285 pounds, and it's only second heaviest if Boban Maranovic doesn't shed six pounds of tears, his Sixers having lost to the Toronto Raptors. You know, I tease Sixers fans, but I do it out of love. No, it's not love. It is a little bit of jealousy. The Sixers do win, and the Knicks do not. I am hoping Zion goes to the Knicks. It's unlikely. They have a 14% chance of getting him. The top three teams, which means the worst three teams, all each each have a 14% chance, and then the odds taper down from there. He's done something for me already. He has concentrated my mind. I've been a conflicted Knicks fan, verging on almost being Nets curious for a couple of years. I do live two blocks from the Barclays Center, It would be smarter of me and kind of cooler of me to like the Nets. They are fun. They are young. They happen to like basketball, whereas the Knicks are run by an incompetent oligarch who hates his own fans. And I realize if I could exert any rationality in this matter, I would. I have indeed tried to. But as I approach tonight, I realize I cannot. I want Zion. If I get Zion, if the Knicks get Zion, I am going to be very happy. And if the Knicks don't, well, then I can comfortably go back to talking myself into Nets fandom. I mean, hey, Boban Maranovic is going to be a free agent. That's something. On the show today, speaking of Zion, Rashida Tlaib and Zionism. Is Rashida Tlaib an anti-Semite? No, no, she is not. Does she have useful history lessons to offer about Israel? Also, no, we will discuss. But first, Richard Clark is the kind of guy that they call a foreign policy hand. Now, as a hand, he was a lot wiser than Tyrion, though, like Varys, he did get a bit singed on the way out. For years, 
the former national security staffer, has been sharing wisdom on the airwaves. And for the last two years, he's been doing it on the pod waves. So now here is Dick Clark, host of the Future State podcast on The Gist. Richard Clark, who goes by Dick Clark, is famous within the foreign relations community. He is a government official who worked for Republicans and Democrats. He was national coordinator for security infrastructure protection and counterterrorism for the United States. And now, actually, it's in its second year, he has a new podcast where he talks to some of the smartest people who are looking at some of the most sensitive areas that I have to say I find to be alarmingly ignored these days. Dick Clark, thanks for joining me. No, good to be with you. Why did you want to do this podcast? Well, I had worked with ABC News as a uh, talking head, commentator, uh, analyst for 15 years after I left government. And the longer I went on at ABC, the less uh, amount of time you had to talk about anything. It started out maybe... Back in the early 2000s, I, you know, maybe I'd get three minutes to talk about an important topic. And, you know, as time went on, you had to say it in 30 seconds. And, uh, you know, it's pretty much the same wherever you go. I don't want to pick on ABC. There's really not a lot of opportunity for in-depth conversation. I thought, therefore, podcasting was the obvious way of finding an, uh, a space where I could talk to whoever I wanted to talk with uh, for as long as I wanted to talk with them. Are these maybe a little more formalized versions of the kind of conversations you would have when you were a talking head to make yourself smarter, or are they more performative for the audience? They're kind of the conversations I would have in the White House when I identified an issue that I thought was coming down the road uh, and I didn't know enough about. A lot of the people on the show are people I met in government uh, and who are now out of government. Uh, We just had a show uh, with Ernie Moniz, who was the Secretary of Energy. Uh, But when I met him, he was working in the White House on uh, energy policy and nuclear policy. Uh, and he's, he's a marvelous character. You know, he, first of all, he looks like a character. He has this, this long sort of Benjamin Franklin hair, you know. Um, <laughs> and he, he, he is, in fact, an MIT professor, uh, you know, brilliant physicist uh, and chemist. And, you know, he had a great story about he and John Kerry essentially negotiated the Iran uh, nuclear deal. Uh, which they insist on calling the JCPOA, and no one knows what that is, but it's the Iran nuclear deal. And part of the reason they succeeded was that the Iranians brought their top nuclear physicist, and we had ours, and oh, by the way, they both went to MIT. <laughs> so the, the, you know, there was some common language there. Uh, and Ernie uh, you know, brought little MIT uh, trinkets for uh, the Iranian's granddaughter or something. You know? uh, so you get not only a, a detailed description of why the treaty was a good uh, – why the agreement was a good idea and how many metric tons of enriched uranium and how many bombs that could make and get – you get all that detail. But you also get the inside personal color. When you talk to an Ernest Moniz, it must be hard for you not to constantly – compare that, and I don't know if it's the ideal, but it's what we had in that role to the current administration and current occupant. And I think Rick Perry is actually a very good politician, but, 
you know, my God, let's put up their academic credentials against each other. And since Secretary of Energy is the one who's charged with our nuclear arsenal, it's no comparison. And I wonder if time and again, you have to force yourself not to compare the smart people you're talking to, to their equivalents in the current administration. It's, it's difficult. I used to joke with my friends that I thought the people in the office of personnel uh, in the White House, the people who picked the political appointees in the various departments and agencies, uh, I used to joke that they, whenever they got a job opening, they said, who's the worst person we could pick? And I no longer think that's a joke. I actually think that's what they tried to do. And now, look, there, there are a few, and I do stress the word few, smart people in the administration. They're kind of like the evil genius types like mm-hmm. John Bolton. Mm-hmm. You know, I used to sit next to John Bolton every morning and the, when we were both assistant secretaries of state. And John's a bright guy. Yeah. And he's very funny. Um, but he's evil. Uh, <laughs> I mean, it just comes down to that. He really wanted to go to war with North Korea. Yeah. And... Uh, the president, oddly enough, doesn't apparently want to go to war. And, and, but John realizes he can't have everything he wants. You know, he backs off of that. Uh, but he's manipulating the president. What about Mike Pompeo? He graduated first in his class at West Point, so he's not stupid. But what's your take on no, him? No, and, 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 and I gather he went to Harvard Law and everything else. No, mm-hmm. he, the, the, he's obviously a smart guy. He, for whatever reason, has decided to tow the line, uh, whatever the line is the president gives him. It may be the case that behind the scenes, he's trying to, you know, subtly direct the president. I remember when in the Ronald Reagan administration, when Reagan came out with this crazy idea called Star Wars, uh, the Ballistic Missile Defense Initiative, and almost none of us knew it was coming until the day before. And we met with George Shultz, who was a great secretary of state, and he said, Listen, it's a stupid idea uh, and it would be very destructive and very dangerous. None of us can ever say that even to friends hmm. because it will get back to the White House. And I, George Schultz, have to have credibility with the president. You will undercut my credibility with the president if you guys who work for me are talking him down and his pet rock idea down. So just go along and we'll slow roll it. And I will move him off that position over time. Maybe that's what Pompeo is doing. We can hope, right? But also, if you're in a position where you're working for a guy where your entire job is playing defense, and maybe McMaster and Mattis thought that this is what they had to do. It is. It is what they thought. Yeah. So how would you have made the calculation? When is the time you say, I can't do this anymore? Well, I I had that um, problem. When it was clear to me that uh, George Bush was going to go to war with Iraq come hell or high water, Uh, no matter what the UN inspectors found, no matter uh, what the Congress said, no matter what the allies said. Uh, And uh, it can't be White House staff to a president who made up a war and is going to kill thousands of people. Now, did I resign and hold a press conference the next day? No, I didn't. Ultimately, I did. Uh, It took me about a year. So this raises something that I've grappled with and I'm eager to ask you. As bad as Donald Trump has been as president and as low a character as he's been shown to have and as bad as his policies are, I think, for most Americans to say nothing of how he sets us up in the world going forward, which is to say a huge step back. I decry it on my show almost every day. 
It's, it's a horrible thing for America and the tone he sets. But here's my question. Just in terms of the tangible harm he's done to the country, would you say that just by dint of the Iraq war, George W. Bush did worse? Yes, uh, I have been saying that. People have a very short memory. Uh, George W. Bush was the worst president of the United States in, in history. Uh, now, Trump is, is you know, closing in on that title, uh, but he hasn't done enough. He's got to, it in him. Really He's got him in him, Dick. <laughs> well, I, you know, does he? I, I used to fear he wanted to go to war and that he would go to war because during one of his rallies, you know, during the election, he said, I love war. But I'm good at war. I've had a lot of wars of my own. I'm really good at war. I love war in a certain way. But apparently he doesn't. And let's hope he doesn't. And he's done tremendous damage. We could all go on and on about how much damage he's done. But it doesn't begin to compare in terms of either the dollars or the bodies that Bush is responsible for as an elective. You know, Bush kind of decided, oh, you know, I think this is a good idea. Totally a war of choice. And you can get various figures about how much it costs the United States government but they all begin with the word T, the letter T. You know, they're all in the trillions. And you can get various figures about how many hundreds of thousands of people got killed. Mm-hmm. And people forget ISIS and every, the awful thing that ISIS did in the Middle East is directly a result of our invading Iraq. That would never have happened otherwise. So it's not just the, the uh, fighting in Iraq that the U.S. forces did with the Iraqis uh, during the insurgency. It's also the entire spread of ISIS into Syria uh, and the destruction of all those cities. Mosul, a city of you know, 1.2 million people, flattened. Uh, and there were five other cities, uh, not as large, but large cities flattened. And they're not being rebuilt. And as a result, they are becoming petri dishes for the next wave of terrorism. I want to ask you a couple things about uh, topics on your show. So I was surprised to learn that when they do the war games, when they game it out, we always lose to the Chinese. Uh, my question is, is that because I we're was fighting? too. Yeah. <laughs> is that because we're fighting a different war than they are? I just recently discovered this, that uh, for the last couple of years, when uh, think tanks, really professional think tanks like RAND that worked for the Pentagon, uh, do war games, we lose. With the Chinese, we lose. It's in part because we rely on World War II ideas like aircraft carriers in the Pacific. That's our war plan. You know, send all the aircraft carriers off the coast of China. Guess what? The Chinese figured that out, uh, and they invented very fast missiles, uh, hypersonic missiles and highly uh, lofted trajectory missiles with great accuracy that will sink every aircraft carrier in half an hour. Uh, and then they uh, have also figured out that, all right, that's the Navy. The Air Force operates out of Air Force bases in and around the Pacific. Those Air Force bases can also be blown up very quickly in the first few minutes of a war by, by ballistic missiles. Uh, and there's really no defense against ballistic missiles. Uh, and then, bang, where are you? Recently, you interviewed Michelle Flournoy, and there was a exchange where you talked about findings that the, uh, the, the Russians and I think the Chinese were inside U.S. infrastructure. And if they wanted to, they could essentially flip a switch in terms of cybersecurity and make our infrastructure suffer very greatly. You asked her a question um, which amounted to, should we do the same to them? 
And her answer was, I thought, a bit evasive. And as a listener, I said to myself, that answer to me says, if I read between the lines, we already are. Did that, is that what that answer meant to you? I assume we are. Yeah. Um, I don't know. Um, uh, I'm, uh, to be very clear, I no longer have top secret. I, I have no security clearances anymore, which is mm-hmm. the way I want it. I think the, the fact that the Russians are, are in our electric power grid, the Chinese are in our natural gas pipeline system upon which the electric power grid depends. These are not me speculating. This is the unclassified national threat assessment issued by the director of national intelligence and the 17 U.S. intelligence agencies. Uh, And it got a little bit of media attention, but not a lot. I think it's like a sword of Damocles, you know, hanging over our heads. You want to do what to the Russians? Uh, Gee, Mr. President, yeah, we could do that. But then the eastern power grid is going down. You still want to do that, Mr. President? Yeah. I think it should be a, a, a number, number one national priority, not only to get them out of the controls of the power grid and the gas pipelines, make sure they never get back in, but also architect those networks so that they don't all go down if, uh, if one part of it is attacked. You remember 2003 uh, when we had the great northeast power blackout. A tree fell in Ohio. Uh, and New York City and Detroit and Cleveland and everything. You know, a tree they, they, fell in Ohio. That's right. The, they traced it to a specific the squirrel. Of the study. <laughs> yes. Yeah. A squirrel. Yeah. Right. Ate a power line. Yeah, it was an Al Qaeda. It was an Al Qaeda <laughs> squirrel. Yeah, we still have the same system. You know, the cascading failure. Uh, where we ought to have a segmented micro-generation uh, system. Uh, we ought to realize that we need backup that will work. What, what people think of when they hear these stories is, oh, the lights go out. Yeah, they come back in a few hours. You know? mm. The worst case that's ever happened is we had a hurricane once and I didn't have power for three days. No, we're talking about physical destruction of transformers uh, and generators, and we don't have any extras you got to build them from scratch. You could have major cities out for months. Just think about that. How much cash do you have in your pocket right now? Come uh, on, how much? How much cash? I think about 120. I'm flush right now. That's it. That's all the cash you're going to have for the next four months because the ATMs aren't going to work. Yeah. And when there is food available, which you know there won't be after a couple of days, uh, you're going to have to barter for it. I mean. The society that we have falls apart within a week without electric power. Man. So when the head of national intelligence says, hey, the Russians are in our power grid control systems, um, why are we talking about anything else? You know, why aren't we just fixing that problem? Okay, my last question is this. George Packer is a big cover story in The Atlantic, and he's talking about it being the dusk on an American century. That has passed. I wonder about that. I wonder if it's true. I wonder how much it means if we think about an American century or we're thinking about things in, you know, the form of aircraft carriers and old power. But do you think it's true? Do you think it matters? Do you worry about it? Uh, I read the article. It's largely about Dick Holbrook. Uh, I I don't think it's true yet, uh, but I think at any given time uh, throughout our history as a country, we could blow it. Uh, and we came close to blowing it a few times. But we never have. Uh, we've always been able to bounce back. I'm not sure you can bounce back uh, from eight years of Donald Trump. I think, you know, things move at an incredibly fast rate these days. 
We're talking on the on the Future State podcast about quantum computing and machine learning uh, and gene editing and robotics uh, and the, the national security and political implications of those technologies. If we don't do the right thing on those technologies in the next uh, six years, uh, we are going to be left behind in the dust by China. I'm not saying that we have to beat China at everything. I don't see inevitability about the United States and China being enemies. Uh, I think we can be frenemies. Uh, we can be, you know, in competition, but uh, help each other occasionally and certainly not go to war. Uh, but we have to handle the Chinese rise and we have to handle these technological innovations uh, and the effect they have on our society wisely. Uh, and we don't have forever to do that. We don't have forever on climate change. Uh, as Gina McCarthy told me on the podcast, you know, we probably have 10 years maybe at the outside to get it right and then it's irretrievable. Uh, I don't think we can have six of those 10 years be Donald Trump. Richard A. Clark is a former chief counterterrorism advisor on the National Security Council. He served three presidents, and if you include a time for the State Department, a fourth in Ronald Reagan. His podcast is called Future State, and it's all about this, but with people a lot smarter than me. Thank you so much, Dick Clark. All right. Thank you. Bye. Hey, listener, you may have heard via your earbuds, car stereo, smart speaker, or immersive shower sound system that podcasts are the future. We at Slate think so, too, which is why we are hosting Slate Day in New York City on Saturday, June 8th. And it won't just be stuffy panels. Oh, but it'll be them, too. The day starts with a performance by Ms. Cracker of RuPaul's Drag Race fame. We've got pop culture trivia, where you can join Slate's own writers. A play date for kids, organized by our parenting podcast, Mom and Dad Are Fighting and You Know Hit Parade, that podcast about the biggest hits in pop and music. They are going to have a dance party. Of course, we will have panels too, including mine, titled The Art of Podcasting with Mike Pesca. I'll be asking questions to the people who usually ask questions in this, the podcast industry. I can't wait for it. Go to slate.com slash live for tickets. See you Saturday, June 8th. And now the spiel. Representative Rashida Tlaib was on the Skullduggery podcast and somehow was accused of engaging in double-dealing underhandedness and trickery. Who could have seen that from the Skullduggery podcast, that the Skullduggery podcast would be a forum for that sort of thing? Now, in reality, the Skullduggery podcast is a quite substantive podcast. It is hosted by Michael Isakoff and Daniel Claydman, two very fine journalists, although they insert their ads at the weirdest times, like mid-sentence. Just a note, I won't tell other podcasts what to do. In fact, you could argue it gives us an advantage over them. But Claydman and Isakoff had Congresswoman Tlaib on and asked her about her stance about Israel, and she said this. And there's, you know, there's a kind of a calming feeling I always tell folks when I think of the Holocaust and the tragedy of the Holocaust and the fact that it was my ancestors, Palestinians, who lost their land and some lost their lives, their livelihood, the human dignity, their existence in many ways have been wiped out and some people's passport. I mean, just all of it was in the name of trying to create a safe haven for Jews post the Holocaust, post the tragedy and horrific persecution of Jews across the world at that time. And I love the fact that it was my ancestors that provided that, right, in many ways. 
but they did it in a way that took their human dignity away, right? And it was forced on them. And so when I think about a one state, I think about the fact that why couldn't we do it in a better way? The juxtaposition of Holocaust and calm caused, uh, what's the opposite of calm? Quite a bit of tumult. It was this weird floating word that didn't seem to attach to Holocaust. I'm not exactly sure what Representative Tlaib was saying, if anything. But I don't think, in fact, I know that the worst characterizations of her remarks as put forward by Republicans were inaccurate. Liz Cheney tweeted, Rashida Tlaib says thinking of the Holocaust provides her, quote, a calming feeling. Well, she didn't exactly say that, and she certainly didn't mean it. What did she mean? I think she meant something that isn't a slur and isn't a calumny, but is inaccurate and is in favor of a policy that I think is really quite wrong. And you know who else thinks it's wrong? Everyone in Congress, at least by their professed positions on Israel and Palestine, the one state solution. So let's back up, because a few weeks ago, I talked about and played the entire comments of the other female Muslim of Congress, Ilan Omar, and she used the phrase, some people, it was in this context. Care was founded after 9-11 because they recognized that some people did something and that all of us were starting to lose access to our civil liberties. She was pilloried for that, but as I said on the gist, having listened to the entire speech, this was a nothing burger, a lache shawarma, Arabs invented the concept of zero. Did you know that? I, I looked at it. I think, I think I'm saying zero in Arabic, I hope. In that same speech, Omar said people to describe a whole bunch of different kinds of people. One time she even said fascinating people to describe the protesters outside of her speech. And those protesters were horrible people, people who were alleging that the Quran was Mein Kampf. She called them fascinating people. When you r- listen to the whole speech, as I did with a non-accusatory, non-prosecutorial ear. And when you scale it from one to 10, the amount of legitimate offense that can be attributed to Omar's remarks, I'd give it a 0.02. I'd give Tlaib's specific offense something like a one and a half on a scale of one to 10. That is less than four recent Trump tweets, by the way. Tlaib doesn't literally calm herself or get any sort of warm feeling when thinking about the Holocaust. But I think those statements were saying some things that are not true. I think she was saying, and here I am helping her a lot, that it is a good thing that the Jewish people are safe from genocide. But it is an irony that that safety came at the cost of her ancestors. Now, let's not get into the Arab Israeli War of 1948. Let's not get into UN Resolution 181. Let us just listen to more of Talib's words and arguments. The thing is, I'm one person that grew up in a black community that saw what inequality and oppression looks like. And to me, that's how I was raised. And now I'm a Palestinian uh, American Congress member. And you're telling me to wipe that out and change it and look at it from a different lens. And how can I do that? I just really think it's important for people to understand that I can't dissect or uh, completely take that lens off. Well, putting aside the lens and the less thens, there are elements to this assertion that can be rebutted. As a member of Congress, no one is asking you to change your lens. I would, however, like my elected officials to consider other 
perspectives, you know, because I'd like the right policy. This is how we get a white politician from the South being the champion of civil rights. No one asked for a lens change. We just wanted from LBJ, say, the right policy. I'd also say that having grown up in a black community does not compel any actual black members of Congress who are members of the Black Congressional Caucus to adopt Tlaib's position on the one-state solution. And by the way, in case you were wondering, that one state is Palestine. It is legitimate enough for one member of the 435 members of Congress to have this position. A lot of the world has this position. And it is illegitimate to say that Rashida Tlaib gets calm when thinking about the Holocaust. But if we're being fair and accurate, let us call out the following sentence and sentiment as one that isn't true. I'm coming from a place of love for equality and justice. I truly am. I want a safe haven for Jews. Who doesn't want to be safe? I am humbled by the fact that it was my ancestors that had to suffer for that to happen. Palestinians did not have to suffer for Jews to be safe. Again, I'm not going to get into the partition of 1947, but it was not an historic inevitability for there to be an Arab-Israeli war or for the Palestinians to have lost that war and the territory with that war, just as it is not inevitable that the Mufti of Jerusalem, Amin al-Husseini, allied himself with Hitler, but he did do that. So we all make choices, and those choices have consequences. There is one other aspect of her words that I will note, and it is this. There is so much care and attention given and paid to sensitivities around persecuted groups, Palestinians, black people, women. I would put Jewish people in those persecuted groups. And I do not actually think, I definitely don't think Omar on the comments that I played was committing any sort of misdeed. And I don't exactly think that Talib was committing a misdeed. But if you weigh the care and sensitivity that we demand when speaking about almost all minorities in our society and the care and sensitivity that Talib demonstrated, Talib in those comments does come up short. Can we not say that? And it is also a frequent charge that apologies after the fact are seen as tone deaf or not going far enough or an inadequate apology. And I think what Talib was doing in taking great offense at having her words policed, if you changed the charge of anti-Semitism and the group of Jews to just about any other group in our society, I would say that most public officials who got on their high horse and took huge offense at their words being policed would have less standing to do that in general. So what I'm saying is, if we are going to be consistent, it is either consistently wrong to demand abject and total apology for any bit of implied offense that could have been taken for any group, that could be wrong, and I'm willing to sign off on that. Or it is wrong to say that Rashida Tlaib has absolutely nothing to apologize for, and she should come out guns blazing, saying, don't police my speech in this instance. I'm just pointing to the contradiction. And listen, I hope I am offering a service by saying in general, and my message is that the attacks, the criticisms on Rashida Tlaib are in general wrong. But also, 
I would like to point out that her version of history is not the most accurate. And as an added service, I would like to note that while she has stances that I disagree with, she is certainly free to pursue implementation of those stances democratically and hopefully uninflected by lies. Lies told about her or the other way around. And that's it for today's show. Pierre Vienna and Daniel Schrader are back to producing the gist. The Sam Lee Interregnum was short, but a glorious reign. Now on to the period of restoration. TJ Raphael, a senior producer of Slate Podcasts, she is ordering a pitcher of sangria tonight and predicts her future state will be a little bit tipsy. The gist. I once promised to eat a raccoon, and I will if one could be procured with safety assured, but it'd be a greater societal service if the specific raccoon I ate was a potential blackout-causing raccoon, although it would be worse for society if blackout prevention depended on this specific method. Oomperu, depru, dupru, and thanks for listening. <laughs>